Welcome to Skycast Episode 7, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing Episode 407, Gimme Shelter. So lay it on me. What did you think? <laughs> <laughs> Literally every episode now we're like, we love it. But really, guys, we love it. <laughs> yeah, th- I mean, we, we were talking earlier and this might be um, our favorite episode of the season so far. I mean, I think mine is still tied with episode three, which I really, really loved. But this one was very close, if yeah. not if not tied. Definitely tied. And, uh, you know, it was just like a winner all around. Um, before we get into the recap, we just wanted to take a second to thank Jacob MC31 and Lit Junkie for leaving us reviews on iTunes. Thank you guys. We'd love for um, anyone else who can to take a quick second to rate us on iTunes as well. Um, you don't have to, but the more ratings we have, the easier it is for other fans of the 100 to find us, and we'd really appreciate your support. Yeah, thanks guys. Um, so with that said, let's move into the recap. Okay. I think we're going to jump off with the Clark and Amori plotline. Um, so to start out, we see Jackson showing Clark Becca's lab. And he says that this area that we've been seeing for the past couple of episodes is the main research lab, but there are actually five other levels. What? So what is on these other levels? I must know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, seriously though, this feels like a huge piece of information. Oh, definitely. We're going to see all of the levels or at least some of the levels in this season. I feel like there has to be at least one other level that is going to hold some importance. I agree. I, I don't know what that would be other than the fact that Bill Cadigan's hypersleep somewhere. But. I like, I didn't want to give that, to, I didn't want to lead into that. <laughs> I feel like that was really my only shot to get Bill Cadigan in there this episode. So and with that, <laughs> and with that, we'll move on. Yeah. Um, so Clark and her mother are finally reunited and it's really lovely. I mean, it's, it's, I love that Clark says that she know she just needs to see her mom because that's a feeling that I know very well when I'm particularly upset. I know. And I, I love that we get to see this moment of vulnerability from Clark. She's always so stalwart in her own convictions. And this is just such a sweet moment. And I like that, you know, immediately off the bat, Abby can deduce what's going on with Clark. It's, it's just like, she's such a mom. Yeah. It was also interesting here to note that Abby actually like touches Clark and says, it's really you. Because I, we saw at the end of episode five that Abby has been hallucinating Clark, kind of dying from radiation poisoning. So does this mean that she's told people about this? I mean, I mean, Jackson, he knows that she's having trouble sleeping because Jackson told Clark that. But I don't know if he knows the extent of her trauma here. I don't think so. I, I think the fact that Jackson even brought it up to Clark in the first place proves that Abby is being evasive with him. And I feel like he thinks Clark may be able to get through to her where he has failed through no fault of his own. Yeah, I mean, Abby wants to keep it that way. She wants to keep this to herself, I think, um, which is shown when she brushes off Jackson's and Clark's concerns and, you know, clearly doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. So uh, Clark sees Raven's scan and she notes that this is the kind of stroke that Raven can heal from as long as Raven takes it easy. So I I guess I wanted to delve in right here. I've been kind of mulling over this theory lately. I was re-watching the trailer for season four to see what scenes we haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. And there were two that stuck out to me. The first was Murphy and Clark fighting at some point in Becca's lab. The second one was Imori kind of hugging Murphy and, and like telling him, like, please survive. And so that with that in mind, I feel like 
you know, the, if they figure out how to take the rocket into space, which I feel like they will because you don't introduce a rocket without launching it, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think Raven's going to be able to fly it. I think she's going to be too incapacitated because of her stroke. Mm. So in her place, I feel like Murphy might fly it instead because of those two scenes. Um, because the one where Murphy is yelling at Clark and the one where Amore is begging Murphy to survive, it both looks like he's ready to board the rockets. So I, I, I'm, like, actually pretty convinced this is going to be the case. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this is going to come about. I think that Murphy watching over Raven as she was testing the flight simulator. And then also the insight on how he, like, could get the rocket back safely. And, and kind of giving Raven that idea himself. Um, I think that means that he has the capability to fly in her place. And I wonder what the instigating factor would be that would make him volunteer for this. I'm worried, but also excited. No, I'm excited. I love this theory. And I feel like the instigating factor is Raven is as you said incapacitated and I think all other options will be at like at some point like unavailable and if I remember correctly I also think Amori is in like a hospital gown Mm. which makes me think that maybe she has started to succumb to the radiation because she's a grounder so it's going to be quicker than the sky people um I, I guess that would be a, a big factor for him to want to go exactly. into space. That would be a, a, a huge motivation. <laughs> so just something to keep in mind. Uh, Abby tells Clark that there might be a way to make Nightblood without actually going into space, and that is to inject people with Luna's bone marrow, which in theory would turn them all into Nightbloods. But of course, to do so means they would have to test it. So the question here is, who do they test? Uh, Clark's behavior in this scene, I wanted to say it felt a little flippant to me. Like she didn't even seem affected by the fact that they would potentially have to kill another person to test this theory. And it felt a little bit off to me, you know, not that Clark wouldn't do it, but that she didn't seem conflicted about it. You know, like telling Abby, they didn't have a choice. Um, and I also loved that Abby responds to them. Like we always have a choice. It's just that both of these options suck and we have to decide which sucky path to take. Absolutely. And I love that Clark is usually the moral compass or at least the character we always rely on to make the right choice in a tough situation because we trust that she's going to make choose the lesser of two evils. But we see here that even Clark can be brought to task and that she actually inherited these qualities from Abby who is showing her up here and like really defining what this show is all about, you know, making those tough choices. Yeah. And as Abby and Clark are talking, they don't realize that Himori has come into the lab and is hearing every single thing they're saying, and she's not liking it. Uh, but Jackson comes in and exposes the hiding Amori, who covers them, or who covers herself up by asking if they need anything from the mansion. And Abby ends up sending Clark back with her to get some rest. So honestly, here Amori's cover up was so smooth. Like I was very impressed. Although I guess, I guess, judging by the rest of this episode, I think I've been underestimating Amori thus far. Uh, thus far, but it it won't happen again. Uh, no, <laughs> no, we should have known here what we were dealing with. Yeah. Um, so as Clark and Amori are making their way toward the mansion, Clark notes that Amori used to work for Abby or for Ali scavenging tech. So this is something that we've known since season three, but Amori's response of um, something like that to to Clark's you know sentence, it denotes that what we've previously thought about Amori isn't quite true. And it makes me wonder what is the whole truth? Like what was she really doing for Abby or for Allie. I don't know why I keep saying Abby. Um, and what, what, like, like, how did she get started in that? Yeah, I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. Yeah, I think this episode brings us a lot closer to mm-hmm. that. 
So Amori tests Clark. She's saying that Clark is just like Abby. She's willing to do anything to save her people and that Sky Crew is lucky to have her. Oh my god, I I love this line because like the way Amori says it is it's like a compliment knowing that Clark will take it like a compliment, but she doesn't really mean it, you know. In fact, she means this as a condemnation. She equally distrusts both of them. Yeah, and I mean, the complete shade in Amori's eyes when Clark says she's not just doing this for Sky Crew is fantastic. Like, Amori is not buying what Clark is trying to sell. No way. And I, I like how this sets up how good Amori is at manipulating Clark long before this plotline um, pays off. The setup is fantastic. It is fantastic. And you know what is equally fantastic? This freaking awesome mansion that they head into. <laughs> So we've been total idiots in the last two episodes wondering where everyone is sleeping. I think, you know, in episode four, when they were heading to Becca's lab, I guess I assumed the lab would be inside the mansion. So when the lab turned out to be the uh, underground bunker instead, I like completely forgot the mansion existed. Me too. And seeing it was like a slap in the face. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. This totally blew my socks off. It was like we were suddenly watching a different show on the CW. I thought we had like switched to like Riverdale. <laughs> I, I had to double check that there wasn't something wrong with the file and that they hadn't like con- like spliced two different <laughs> shows together. I mean, it just feels so anachronistic to the rest of the show. I think even more so than Becca's Lab does. And also, can I just say... Allie must have a fantastic grounder cleaning service because there is not a speck of dust in that place. And I guarantee you that Murphy is not cleaning it. Yeah, it was just this set was like unreal. <laughs> unreal. I just, I like still always think of Smart House where just like the dust kind of like gets sucked in, the trash gets sucked into the floor. I was also thinking that. Allie is also like the Smart House mom. <laughs> she is. She totally is. <laughs> AU fanfic. <laughs> Let's write that. Someone get on that. Um, through the glass doors of the mansion, we see Murphy dancing and cooking inside. And when Clark sasses him with her surprise that he can cook and read, Murphy lets her taste his cooking to prove it. And she is very impressed. Yes, she is. (laughs) I love his little dancing. We were, when we were writing our notes, we like didn't know how to talk about this scene because it's just so delightful. Like, yes, Murphy, you are one of the good ones. At least, at least for Amori, you know? (laughs) She so genuinely believes that he's the good one. And like, that's actually true for them. Like, it's just so sweet. And I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we get to see them, like, act kind of coupley more so than we've ever seen them before. Yeah, they're very affectionate. And Clark can't even watch it. Like, seeing two people happy together in that way is still too painful and uncomfortable for her. Yeah, and I was wondering, who do you think she's thinking about as she's watching them and making that face? That's a great question. I I honestly don't think she was thinking about anyone specifically. I think it was more like she hasn't had anything like this, maybe except for a moment with Finn, like right after they had sex, but before Raven's pod crashed. Um, And with Lexa and with Finn, after Raven came to Earth, it was like so much angst. And even though she loved them both, it wasn't easy like Murphy and Amori are here together. So I just think this moment was her wishing that she could find that kind of easy happiness with someone. I don't think she's actually ever had anything like this, not even with Finn, because he was never her equal like Amori and Murphy are. They're perfect for each other. And I think watching them made Clark realize that she's never had this with any of the people who she's been intimate or romantically involved or even in love with. Yeah, I I guess I agree with that. I, I also don't think that, you know, there are, I mean, this is a whole other discussion, but I think that her love for Finn was very innocent and honestly not really that deep. It wasn't the same as her love for Alexa. And I guess you can't ever love someone the same. But I agree with you that 
She's never had this. She's never, like, put all the cards on the table like Murphy and Amori have with each other. Yeah. Like, they are totally honest with each other 100% of the time. And I do want that for her. I do, too. I hope she can find that someday with someone. someone. <laughs> um, so Murphy offers to show Clark where her bedroom is. But instead, Amori just tells her where it is because she clearly doesn't want Murphy to go after her. Uh, because as soon as Clark leaves, Amori tells Murphy that they have to run. So Amori here doesn't have any doubt in her mind that Abby and Clark will choose to test the nightblood on her. And, you know, given Amori's background, I, I don't blame her for coming to this decision. But that said, do you really think that this is the decision that Clark and Abby would have made? No, I really don't. I mean, we've seen many times on this show that when presented with a situation like this, people volunteer. I think they'd ask for somebody to sacrifice themselves first. And if that didn't work, they might have to test it on like a hostile grounder or something. Not not Amori, though, who is, like, already established as part of their group, albeit, like, a recent addition. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think they would ask someone to sacrifice themselves. I think they would immediately discount the people in their group. And I guess, I mean, theoretically, if they did decide to sacrifice Amori, they would also have to kill Murphy, because if they didn't, he would absolutely come after them. And I don't think that they would risk sacrificing two people here when they could find one person somewhere else. I mean, not that they would actually, I really don't think that they would sacrifice Amori. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I just don't think they'd even consider it as an option in the first place. But Amori doesn't know them that well, so she doesn't know that. Yeah. It is also interesting here that Murphy's first thought when Amori tells him they have to leave is that the scavengers have come for her. Like, he knows much more than we do why she's scared of this island and what horrors she's associated with it. Um, and I'm looking forward to finding out. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. So Clark sees this gorgeous bedroom where she just kind of basks in the glory for a little while. Uh, but when she touches the bed, she gets it dirty. So she decides, maybe I should take a shower. So she takes a shower and it's wonderful. And then she lays down to take a nap and we're all so happy for her. But it's Clark and she can't have nice things. So the second she closes her eyes, she hears this like weird banging noise. So she gets up and she grabs her gun and goes to investigate. So first, this might be one of the the first moments in the show that I was genuinely creeped out. Like we're in this strange new set with this setup that feels very much like a horror movie. And I was just like, I was thinking like, we don't know what lives on this island. We don't know what Amori is afraid of. And Clark's walking out there and I'm like, Clark, no, don't go into that dark room by yourself. You're the blonde girl. You're going to die. Absolutely. I, I was scared out of my pants. I, I love that the shower scene was two things. You know, it was like, at first it was this like luxurious moment for Clark um, that she had all to herself but then it was like also super reminiscent of Psycho and the music in the background was so creepy and it just like flowed seamlessly into the next scene and the suspense was so real it was an amazing job and the writers did an incredible incredible job here yeah yeah and you aren't really a horror fan oh no I hate them I I was basically dying this entire like I sitting on my like my feet on the couch. <laughs> I mean, I love horror movies, but I go into those expecting to be scared. So I'm always somehow like less scared here. I did not expect it. So I was kind of freaking out because I didn't know what was happening. Me too. Um, but she ends up finding the source of the sound, which is this broken bloody window and this random office. The blinds are like banging against the window and the wind. Um, I also wanted to note here that there is this huge chunk of bright green rock on this desk. My first thought was kryptonite, <laughs> but wrong show. Um, my second thought, though, was 
I've seen this before in Becca's office or the office in Becca's lab, whoever's office it is. Uh, there's also this huge green chunk of rock sitting on the desk. So this could be just a really weird design choice like Becca or that assistant guy, Chris, the guy who like shot himself in the bunker. Maybe they just really liked green rocks and wanted a cohesive aesthetic from the mansion to the, to the bunker. Um, so it doesn't have to mean anything. And I don't know what it would mean. Like I have no idea what a green chunk of rock would be for. But it's just something to keep in mind that I found kind of interesting. Yeah, always on the lookout. So Clark hears a noise behind her and she whips around, but it's just Murphy. He just wants to talk to Clark, but Clark tells him that the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Much to my sugar. Like at this point, I was basically hiding underneath the couch with my eyes closed. I mean, hearing this and then seeing the scene switch to Amori alone in the kitchen. And I was like, oh my God, no, Amori, run. But then I realized it was just like this random grounder and it suddenly lost all horror to me. Absolutely. I, I love the way this show plays with genre. It does not happen often, but when they do, they do such a good job. It's really hard to pull off suspense like this and have it pay off, but it worked so well. It was just exceptionally executed and I loved it. Yeah, it reminded me of, um, was it Demons from season three? The episode where Emerson is like stalking them back yeah. at the arc. Um, that was definitely like, straight horror and this one I feel like could have turned horror but it really became more of like a thriller yeah I agree so it was really fun it was fun to see uh the grounder tries to kill Amori and she's screaming for Murphy and Murphy shows up just in time and like knocks the guy out with the cutting board <laughs> and I'm like this is so industrious of him <laughs> I found him pretty attractive in this scene and, yeah. and the entire episode if I'm being honest I mean I get it I get it I love that even in her like heightened state of panic she immediately calls out for John it just it shows how much he's wormed his way into her subconscious and how much she really trusts him you know for someone who's been on her own for so long she like really like inherently relies on him and I think that's really sweet yeah love in their relationship mm -hmm. um, but before Murphy can kill him though Amori tells him to wait and instead she starts beating up on him herself screaming at him as if she knows him and this is the first time we hear a mention of this mysterious Bayless this is someone who's clearly played a huge role in her backstory uh, I mean his name enough was enough for Murphy to know exactly who this guy is and what he's done to Amori yeah uh, and, we, and we know from the end of this episode, too, that the guy is not Bayless. And seeing that split second on Amori's face where she goes from, like, fearing for her life from this random grounder to putting this entire plan together, it was fantastic. Like, this girl is not messing around. Mm -mm. I, I, I wanted to ask you, so when you first saw this and, like, this whole episode, did you have any clue that she was lying? Not at all. Uh, like, Amori, the actress, is the most convincing <laughs> liar I have ever seen. Same. Like, I had no clue. Not a clue. And I, I think that Amori, I think she's used to being underestimated, and she... I think she pretends to be the person that people think she is and she used their misunderstanding against them. She like forces them to play directly into their, into her hands. Uh, and we can talk about this more in a minute, but I thought it was really an interesting plot. Definitely. And we, you know, we played right into her hands because even though this guy kept saying he wasn't Bayless and had no idea what she was talking about, I didn't for a second consider that he was telling the truth and that Amori was the one who was lying. I, I even thought to myself like, wow, it's weird how vehemently this guy is lying. Like, <laughs> duh. <laughs> I still, I mean, like, I'm still watching it the second time. Uh, I'm, I, mind blown. Yeah. Like, I'm so impressed. Yeah, me too. Uh, so Clark forces Amori to stop beating on this guy because they need to know if others are with him. And Amori acquiesces, but she says that once he's done talking, the kill is hers. Mm -hmm. 
So we switch to later, we see Clark cleaning Amori's wounds uh, up in the bedroom, and she remarks to Amori that she did more damage to Bayless than he did to her, to which Amori replies that she hasn't done enough to him, not yet. Yeah, we see that this sob story is absolutely true. Like, the best lies are always based on facts, and learning the truth from Amori about what happened to her is so so disturbing even though we technically haven't met Bayless yet we know that all of this actually happened just by by how good this lie is right I mean even though Amore is lying about Bayless here it's still clear that Bayless is a real person and the fact that they repeated his name multiple times makes it pretty obvious that we're going to meet him at some point be it in this season or the next season definitely and we know also I guess I was thinking Amore was scared of something on the island back in episode four. And this episode leads me to think that maybe she was afraid of Bayless and his people. Like, tying this in with Amori saying something like that to uh, Clark's comment about her scavenging for Allie uh, earlier in this episode, it makes me think that Bayless is the one who, maybe he, like, ran some sort of scavenging ring for Allie, and maybe he, quote-unquote, saved Amori and her brother when they were children and kind of forced them to work for this scavenging ring. Like, I don't know if Bayless lives on the island or if he just comes to the island for his dealings. I guess it's probably the latter. But it does seem as if Bayless is tied into her theories about the island in general. Yeah, I agree. And I'm really excited to see where this goes. Me too. I feel like I've said that a lot this episode. I know, but... but yeah. But I am. <laughs> Me too. I am really excited for this. Also, this scene juxtaposes Amori and Clark in a really fascinating way. Like, even though Bayless isn't actually Bayless, I still think that this is the same conversation they'd be having if it was. And I love that this, we get this callback to Clark not, or choosing to not kill Emerson back in Polis when she had the chance. And I think it's important to note that in that instance, letting him live was almost more of a punishment than killing him. So I don't necessarily think that Clark took the moral high ground there. And you know, when Amori remarks that Clark must be a better person than she is because Amori is going to kill Bayless for revenge, Clark gets this really pained look on her face, which shows that even though she didn't kill for revenge necessarily, she doesn't think that she let Emerson go out of, mer- out of mercy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So to, like, to Clark, forcing Emerson to live as the last mountain man was a punishment that equaled his crimes much more than killing him would be. Yeah, I, I think she feels just as guilty as like a person who is killing for revenge would. And I also wanted to note a lot of things to note in this scene. When uh, Amori turns away from Clark, I the expression on her face, I when I first watched it, I took this stony expression as her like suppressing her emotions in the way that Clark does when she has to make a particularly cold decision. Yeah, I did too. However, upon second rewatch, it's like very clear that Amori is totally acting. Like when she turns her head and you can see her face, she's clearly calculating every word that comes out of her mouth. Oh, I agree. I mean, it's it's scary how good she is. Um, and I, I also just wanted to say, I think it's really interesting that Amori call, calls out Clark's specialness. And I just wanted to take a second to talk about this word special because the writers employ this word a lot for their main characters. And I do think it's a signal to the audience about who they think is important and drawing connections between them. You know, Clark called Bellamy special just in this last episode um, and Lexa called Clark special last season. I don't think the writers use this to imply any romantic connection, um, regardless if they exist or not, but just rather to denote that these people are exceptional and it's a quality that cannot be discounted because it helps them succeed and thrive where others like Amori struggle. Specialness is a code that a code word that writers use as a nod for exceptionalism. And I love that Amori picks up on this and uses it against Clark. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the whole scene of Amore calling out Clark's privilege, I think, is really important. Like, Clark is a good leader, but we also can't discount the fact that she was, like, literally raised to be one, whereas people like Amore have had to fight to survive their whole lives. Mm -hmm. So, like, Clark wasn't born with the talent to lead. She picked it up from her mother, from her father, from Jaha, like, all people around her who did what they could to make sure the Ark survived. Yeah, she was groomed. And she happens to be really good at leading, but that doesn't mean that if she grew up under different circumstances that she still would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also can't lie that Clark comes across as a little self-righteous at times, which it's fair because she's usually right. Yeah, she is. But she's had an easy life comparatively, and I think it's good for her to be reminded of that every I once agree. in a while. I totally agree. I loved seeing Amori take her down a notch. Yeah. I feel like we spent every episode being like, oh my god, this person's right, but this person's also right. Clark is wonderful, but Clark also needs to be taken down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the show is really good at manipulating my emotions <laughs> like everyone's right and I also love how it plays with point of view because in this whole like Amori plotline I think we're very much supposed to take her side oh I, yeah like that's the way the narrative is written and we do take her side whereas like if it had been switched around a little bit and and we like saw things from Clark's point of view maybe you would have taken her side it's all I don't know it's all relative in the show no I agree because she would have been like deceived yeah and, like an innocent would have been tortured like there you could have easily framed this in a way that made Amori a villain but yeah. they didn't on yeah. purpose Amori was the uh the main character here. Yep. And I loved it. <laughs> uh, Amori tells Clark that the second they let their guard down, Bayless is going to kill them all. And Amori is not going to let this happen today because she is the commander of death. So this was her most calculated move yet. It was like her entire plan hinged around her saying commander of death to Clark. Because like by using the phrase commander of death, she's reminding Clark that Clark is always the one who ends up deciding whether people live or die. And putting that thought into Clark's head kind of naturally gives Clark the idea to use Bayless's death for a purpose. Yeah, we'll get into this more in a second. Um, but just like on a second time watching this around, you can just see how precise Amori's behavior had to be in order to successfully execute this whole plan and just how well she knows Clark. Like it's fascinating to watch her use Clark. And I also think maybe she knows Clark so well because she has begun to know Abby. And it's true. They're very, they're both easily, they both walk along the same path. So like the things that work for Abby probably would also work for Clark. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a good bet. <laughs> um, we go out and we see Murphy has Bayless, quote unquote, tied to a chair. Uh, and the grounder tells Murphy that he's just scavenging so his family can eat. But Murphy is not buying it. I think... I think we all knew that Murphy loved Amori, but I really liked hearing, hearing him say it definitively in this scene. Me too. It was just a nice touch. Yep. <laughs> and Amori comes in and she starts beating Bayless up, but then Clark comes in with a different idea. What if his death could save them all? Yeah, the level of control that Amori had to exercise while pretending to be totally out of control is astonishing. Like, again, she uses everything she's learned about Clark against her, counting on the fact that Clark will not be able to stand idly by while Amori beats up a man for revenge. Since she's already planted this idea in Clark's head upstairs, like we just talked about, like, she's positioned everything so perfectly, waiting um, on Clark to come in and save Bayless from this fate in order to use him so that his death won't be in vain and it'll serve some higher purpose in Clark's mind and justify it. And thus, 
Amori avoids the chamber of death and her whole plan has succeeded. <laughs> oh my god, seriously. She's such a mastermind. I like bow down before her. Me too. This was incredible. I mean, whether it was the right thing to do isn't really a question here. And Mori's just really brilliant at surviving. I'm just, I am in awe of her. She's like 17 steps ahead of Clark, which is saying something. Yeah, because Clark is usually the one who's She's way ahead. Yeah. Um... We switch back to the office at Becca's lab and Kane is calling Abby and he tells her that the black rain has arrived and they need a solution as soon as possible. So Abby tells him, you know, we have a solution, but it might take me down a path that I never thought I would go. So this is the first time that Abby has really had to grapple with the decision to take a life, something that has been really hard on Clark before or something that she's been really hard on Clark uh, about before. And I'm glad that she's finally in the position to... So not only understand the choices that Clark has to make, but also to make one herself. Agreed. Like, this show has so many great lines about the fight for survival turning you into a person you don't want to be. Um, I can think of all of them at the top of my head. We have, uh, from season one, we have who we are and who we have to be to survive are two very different things, which Bellamy said to Clark. Yes. We have, in season two, I think Clark said to Finn, the things we do to survive don't define us. Yep. Um, in season two, we also had Abby tell Clark that maybe there are no good guys. Mm -hmm. And now we have this new one where we have to find a different kind of strength that pushes us to survive. And once we do, then we can find our humanity again. Brilliant quote. So I love the way this show discusses morality and human nature in this really non-judgmental way. I mean, as we've said many times, the show pushes you to decide for yourself who is right and who is wrong, you know, which choice is right and which choice is wrong. And it also pushes you to realize that there may be no right choice sometimes, but that doesn't mean that the choice doesn't still need to be made. Agreed. And I, I know we've talked about this before too, but I really like the way they pair up Kane and Abby. Kane has so much baggage in terms of his own morality and hard choices. The people he's killed, um, for better or for worse, and to have him count, like to have him be the one to counsel Abby, who is basically still pure at this point, is so interesting because even though she hasn't murdered anyone, Kane is actually the one in the position of providing wisdom here, and I just think that's a really interesting reversal. Yeah. Um, and even though he recognizes that Abby's humanity is her greatest strength, sometimes your humanity just can't help you. And I, I think that like you you don't that doesn't mean anything unless it comes from somebody who's had to put their humanity aside. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, in Becca's lab later on, we see them strapping Bayless down to inject the night blood. And when Abby hesitates, Clark reminds her that if they do this and if it works, they all survive. It's that simple. Uh, above, we see Murphy and Amori watching, and we finally get the revelation that the man below is not Bayless. He's just someone to take Amori's place in the oven. I was shook. <laughs> oh, my God. I just wanted to take a second and make sure that we've all given Amori all the credit she deserves. This lady is pure Slytherin, <laughs> and I'm just so impressed with her calculations, how she was able to perfectly execute this plan and manipulate everyone around her, including us. <laughs> yes, and you know, and Murphy's line of, that's a survivor's move, I think was the perfect reminder that while we've seen Murphy kind of widening his circle of people that he cares about, Murphy's not an innocent puppy. Like, when it's between someone that he cares about and some random person, Murphy would let that random person burn and like not even blink an eye. Definitely. And I also just wanted to bring up, you know, I think it's really obvious that this is a callback to um, the Mountain Men in season two. Oh, yeah. Um, but 
and I, I don't need to spend like super a lot of time on this, but I just think it's so interesting how how they were the villains of season two. And like, look how far we've come. You know, like we always say everything is about point of view and we've really just switched roles here at this point. And it is now the ground or Sky Crew and the Grounders who are conducting these experiments on human test subjects in a not so different way than we were in season two. I mean, it's, they're not trying to be subtle and the parallels this whole season about their past sins. Yeah. They're like out of control. Oh yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, like, in a good way. I'm, I, I'm loving seeing how they approach each situation in a different way than they might have done the time before. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just really brilliant and I appreciate that they don't let any of that go. Yeah. Everything has to have an, an echo, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Ba-dum-bum. Oh, echo. So let's move on to the Bellamy, Kane, Harper plotline. Okay. So we're back in Arcadia, and we see Bellamy returning the rover. But as he gets out, the black rain begins, and it's this, like, mad dash for everyone to get inside. And as Harper's running, this guy Lewis grabs her from behind. He, like, wants her to help him, but she shakes him off, and he falls to the ground and is, like, screaming in agony. And Harper turns around and like looks at him and ends up deciding not to help him. She keeps going. So I just wanted to note, I would have sworn this guy's name was Trevor. Like as I was doing my recap, I called him Trevor the entire time. But Britt looked him up later and realized his name was Lewis. So I have no idea how I got the name Trevor. But Trevor's better. And I, I, I don't know why Trevor. you think he's name is Trevor. <laughs> also, Harper standing in the black rain and watching this poor Lewis lying there was really difficult to see because in the amount of time she stood there deliberating, she could have gone back and saved him. Like, he was really close. Yeah, I can appreciate that they just wanted to give Chelsea a, a bigger role and wanted to develop her character by giving Harper a, a moral dilemma, like the kinds of choices that the main cast constantly has to face. But it, it felt a little bit of a reach to me. I mean, I, I guess I do like the fact that the show, it doesn't portray everyone as a hero. Like, not everyone is as self-sacrificing as Bellamy, who goes out in the rain himself to save Lewis. Or, you know, even Clark, who, you know, has done a lot of things that are not in her best self-interest to help other people. Yeah. Uh, especially in a moment of panic, it can be hard to be a hero. Yeah. Um, but we can talk more about this later. Yeah. We have, we, have, we have some things to say. The Bellamy complex. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as they're all washing off inside, Bellamy wants to go out and find Octavia, but Kane says that Octavia's smart and that they have to trust she would have found shelter. Although they don't interact this episode, like at all, um, this feels like a watershed episode, no pun intended, <laughs> for Octavia and Bellamy's relationship. And I think for the better, to be honest. Yeah. This setup was so smart. Like, making Octavia unavailable for Bellamy to save forces him to use this random Mark and Peter as surrogate protectees subconsciously. And I really like that they tie Octavia to this plotline to show that she's never far from his mind and that is she is the driving force um, behind his, like, savior complex. Yeah, I think we'll also have a lot more on this as the episode progresses. Oh, yeah, we're <laughs> just getting started. <laughs> so Harper wants to get Lewis to the med bay, but Kane tells her that there's no way that Lewis is going to survive uh, his wounds, even with treatment, and they need to prioritize. And Harper's really upset because she knows that she could have saved Lewis, but her fear of the black rain stopped her from doing it. And this this is something that I think it will haunt her for a long time to come, in the same way that I think Monty's inaction back in season two um, when some of the mountain men, some of his friends were being killed, haunts him or has haunted him. Yeah, I agree. 
And just because you don't do the right thing in the moment, it doesn't make you a coward. Like I see Harper taking this experience and really learning from it and maybe making a different decision the next time because she knows that failing to help someone in need might actually feel worse than helping someone and getting hurt in the process. If that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And I actually, I wanted to say, I was surprised again by how emotional Harper was this whole episode. Like she was last episode with Octavia. I, I really have to like recalibrate how I see her personality because she's much more emotional than I've been giving her credit for yeah I agree I mean I I think I I did see her emotions in previous seasons but we always we never really paid attention to them because she wasn't that big of a character yeah we like you know kind of glossed over her yeah she has a lot more weight now she's like a much bigger presence so her like emotions like have like a much stronger like meaning yeah um, elsewhere, we see Bellamy taping up a damaged fire suit because he's going to go out after Mark and Peter, who, um, Mark is someone who is working outside and Peter is his son. Uh, Kane, as he's doing this, warns him that the fire damage from the arc fire could have caused micro tears in the suit that they couldn't see. But of course, Bellamy is determined to test it anyway. And I do wonder if he would feel this same sense of determination if Peter weren't one of the hundred. Like, I think he would still be determined to save them, but I don't think making Peter one of the 100, I think, I, I think it helped Peter to be conflated with Octavia in Bellamy's mind. Yeah. If that I, makes any sense. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, th- I think Bellamy thinks of himself as the father, quote unquote, figure <laughs> to all of the hundred, which is a really interesting comparison to him being the actual father figure to Octavia. And those two things cannot be sort of separated. Mm-hmm. Um, Bellamy heads out into the black rain, but as Kane warned, the suit fails and he has to race to the rover to wash the acid rain off. And Kane wants him to come back inside, but hearing Mark's voice over the radio solidifies Bellamy's determination to save them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think at this point, like helping people is like heroin to Bellamy. He will do anything to make himself feel useful and save anyone to ease the burden of guilt that he always carries even if it means sacrificing himself and losing Octavia makes him like almost reckless in order to get his next fix oh absolutely like I think Bellamy has what feels like the opposite of a hero complex like he needs to save people not necessarily because he thinks they deserve to be saved but because he doesn't think he deserves to live when other people are dying Mm -hmm. that's exactly what it is And Kane reminding Bellamy here that he is worth is, like, incredibly important because Bellamy needs to hear that other people care if he dies. Like, he shouldn't want to kill himself to save someone else. Yeah, and it's worth noting, too, that unlike Octavia, Mark and Peter actually want to be saved Mm -hmm. desperately. And, you know, Bellamy cannot ignore a cry for help. He just can't. Bellamy uh, is driving in the rover, and he's almost to Mark and Peter when he has to swerve to avoid hitting this fallen tree, and he ends up getting stuck in the mud. So <laughs> when we got to the scene in the recap, Britt was like, I don't even want to talk about this. I'm so tired of Bellamy and Misery. I can't even. I can't. I'm done. But we have a podcast, so we have <laughs> to talk about it anyway. I know. I mean, this scene was in, it was especially painful because even though there's nothing Bellamy can do, he has to sit here and listen to Mark scream at him over the radio about Bellamy, promising to help them and then not being there. So it's like... I, I don't know. I mean, Bellamy, he doesn't deserve this. Not that I blame Mark, because his son is literally dying in front of him. But I just don't want Bellamy to feel like he's killed them because he didn't. I'm just, I'm so frustrated. I'm like as frustrated as Bellamy is, you know, maybe for slightly different reasons. But I, I just think everyone is is just waiting for Bellamy to catch a break. He just does not need another body to add to his list. <laughs> 
I mean, in this show, Bellamy is going to catch a break either in the last episode or when he's dead. Mm. Probably no other time but that. Mm. <laughs> and, I mean, he can't save Octavia. And now he can't even save Mark, which just it adds to his helplessness. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's interesting that Kane advises him to tell Mark the truth about the situation. It's not like a direct parallel to when Clark lied to Sky Crew about the apocalypse and the list, but there is a through line connecting these two incidents. Like in the macro sense, Clark was deceiving her people about their impending doom. And here we see Bellamy, you know, he could potentially lie to Mark about him and Peter's inevitable death. So we can see that there is like this collective consciousness of the characters in this show. They're learning both from their own past mistakes and each other's. And I I really appreciate that. Yeah, I am glad that, you know, when Bellamy is about to go outside in the rain and try to um, get the river out of the mud, that Kane again reminds him that, like, you are important. There is no reason for you to die trying to save Mark and Peter, who, at this point, like, let's be honest, are probably already lost. Yeah. Um, And Bellamy, like we mentioned before, is in constant need of people telling him that he has worth. And usually that person is Clark. But in her absence now, I'm glad that Kane could kind of step in and add that to him. Yeah, I think, like, after Clark and probably Octavia, once she, like, figures all of her stuff out, you know, Kane is, like, the next person who really, really appreciates Bellamy. Yeah. And that makes me appreciate Kane. So Bellamy tries calling Mark again a little later, but there is no answer, and it's clear that Mark and Peter are dead. Uh, Kane tries to tell Bellamy that it's not his fault, but in true Bellamy fashion, he doesn't really believe him. And this scene makes it very clear that although Bellamy cared about Mark and Peter, really this entire plotline revolved around his inability to save Octavia. Like, from the moment Octavia was born, Bellamy has felt this, like, responsibility toward her that no child should have had to bear, but because of the circumstances of her birth, he couldn't really be her brother. He had to be her father as well. And we've come to a point where he's he's forced to let her go. Like, he's always going to love her, but it's important for him to realize that there are some things he cannot do for her. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, This is also a really interesting setup because it's so similar to when Cain was counseling Abby and Cain again tries to offer his wisdom to Bellamy, telling him you can't save someone who doesn't want to be saved. And although Bellamy doesn't give Cain the satisfaction of accepting Cain's comfort, like the advice does resonate with him and it does finally give him a way of seeing Octavia um, in a way that he hasn't been able to before. Yeah. It's interesting that, like, in some scenarios, Kane is able to be that source of comfort, like, to Abby and to Harper in, like, a little bit. But Bellamy, like, just won't let him off the hook. And he delivers this, like, gut punch of a line, you floated my mother. And I I don't quite know what to make of this line, but it definitely hit me really hard. I mean, I, I agree. I don't know if this line here is going to play a role moving forward or not. Like, I could see it going one of two ways. I could see uh, first Bellamy being a little bit colder to Kane now that he's kind of reminded himself of Kane's past actions. Or second, and more likely to me, this was just Bellamy lashing out one more time in the process of accepting the fact that, like, he can't save his sister. So I don't know if there's really room in the show right now for Bellamy and Kane to be at odds, especially given this coming apocalypse and the fact that these two are the de facto leaders in Clark's absence. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think that it's probably going to be the latter of the two. And this was, like, his final his final whipping, if you will. And I also just, yeah, I just don't want to see it. Yeah, they I don't moved, either. They both moved so far past the people that they were on the arc. It, like, doesn't feel... Relevant. Relevant anymore. Right. No. It has, like, no bearing on their, like, current relationship. Yeah. Um, after Bellamy shuts him down, Kane goes over to Harper, who's crying over Lewis's dead body, and he tells her that the person that you want to be doesn't always win. 
And it was, it was a little bit funny to me that he like immediately went and found another child to mentor. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it also is important here that he says doesn't always instead of doesn't to her because I think that he's saying or he's telling her that if a person didn't win this time that they can still win the next time. Like you can choose in the next situation to be courageous and to make the better decision. Yeah, like exactly like what Kane did himself. Yeah, he's I mean, yeah, perfect description. <laughs> Uh, later, when Bellamy arrives back at Arcadia, Kane tells him that there is still no word from Octavia. But Bellamy repeats that you can't save someone who doesn't want to be saved, and he walks away, leaving Kane alone in the yard. Again with the parallels, <laughs> I I love the way Bob is able to take a line from earlier in an episode and then imbue it with such different meaning. Um, at this point, we see Bellamy finally coming to grips with the fact that Octavia is her own person. Ultimately, he isn't responsible for her and he has to let her go. Um, I think Bellamy's road back to self-redemption is a long and complex one, um, as we've discussed at length. And it's fraught with his relationship with Octavia and it's just weighed on him as much as all of his other crimes have. Seeing him reconcile this at least feels like another huge step in his arc and it was really satisfying Mm -hmm. to me. And I, I also love that in the timeline, um, as Bellamy is saying this to Kane, Octavia herself is finally choosing to save herself and move forward. I mean, we'll get into this a lot later. <laughs> um, but I just love the the symmetry of having like Bellamy finally let go of her the second that Octavia is choosing to take hold of her own life. Yeah, and I think in many ways, Bellamy here is also choosing himself. Like, I really want to read this as positive movement for Bellamy instead of a backward spiral. And I'm not quite sure what direction the writers are going to go because I think it could go either way here but I really hope this means good things for Bellamy's development instead of um you know instead of him beating himself up even more like he can't save anyone kind of thing I am confident that that's the direction they're going in I would not say that I'm convinced but I am confident I I think it's more likely that he's moving forward just because we've seen him beat himself up for not being able to save people before that's not interesting to me anymore like well, I, I mean clearly because you and I were both like so reluctant to talk about this scene yeah I mean like I think this whole I think this whole plot line was very necessary if it was all about Bellamy choosing to keep going and choosing to believe that he's worth saving and that just because he can't save someone else doesn't mean that he's you know less value yeah less value I totally agree and I do think that's the direction they're going I think we have come to that like midpoint of the season this is like around the time that we should be seeing a turning point yeah that's that's true this is episode seven so my gosh we're already over halfway oh man yeah what are we gonna do when the season's over (laughs) sleep Uh, so with that wrapped up, let's move on to Octavia and Ilian. And I think this is the first time we've saved Octavia's plotline for last in our discussion. But this entire storyline with her was so powerful and I think affected us both so much. And I'm, I, I loved it. Yeah. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah. So, uh, in the woods, we see Ilian not so stealthily following Octavia and honestly, I find it adorable that he's trying so hard here and just completely fails. Like, he seems surprised when Octavia catches on to him. But, like, dude, you're being super noisy now. <laughs> it's also interesting to hear him see the situation from last episode as her sparing his life and him now owing her. Like, if I were him, I would want to stay as far away from her as possible so as, like, not to tempt her to murder me again. Yeah. 
But I think that Ilian has a better understanding of Octavia than like anyone else in the show right now. He genuinely sees her as a kindred spirit. And I think using this life debt, he's using it as a way to both keep an eye on her and then also as an excuse to be around her. Yeah, I think consciously he's doing this to watch over her. But subconsciously, it's also because being around someone who understands his pain and feels that same pain is soothing to him. Mm hmm. So it starts to rain, and the rain burns on contact, which makes Octavia realize that the black rain has finally arrived. And she knows that neither of them can survive outside, so she pulls Ilian onto her, her horse, and they ride away. So this is a turning point for Octavia in many ways. Like, she keeps saying that she doesn't care whether Ilian lives or dies, but if that were true, she could have just told him to, like, go find shelter somewhere else instead of taking him with her. Yeah, I think there's a huge difference between not wanting to murder someone and wanting to save them. And this shows where Octavio's really at. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to add. <laughs> uh, Octavia and Ilian find a cave to take shelter in and they wash off the black rain. But as Octavia says, just because they're stuck in that cave, they don't actually need to talk. But <laughs> yeah, Ilian does not agree. <laughs> so later uh, we see her and Ilian sitting around the fire and Octavia is sharpening her knives again. And it, <laughs> it feels like Octavia sharpens her knives every time she wants to feel like a murderer. Like it's just one reminder to her that she needs to stay sharp. The symbolism is lost on no one. <laughs> I mean, she just likes to be dramatic. She can't help it. That's <laughs> no, true. It's very true. I still just think of her sitting there in that cloak, like huddled, sharpening her knife. Yeah, like full on assassin mode. That that image is never going to go away from me. <laughs> Burned in my brain. Uh, Ilian asks where she'll go after this, but she doesn't answer because honestly, like she doesn't know. She no. has nowhere to go. And he says that he doesn't know if he can return home because he will see the faces of the family that he's murdered everywhere. But Octavia just like doesn't let him get by with this. She says that he's not a murderer because he feels the way he's supposed to feel when he kills where she feels nothing. So she's still trying to pretend that she doesn't care. And Ilian like immediately calls her out on it. Thank God. Yeah. I think she, I think she needs someone to tell her that she's doing a terrible job at hiding her emotions. Oh, I agree. Um, like having Ilian calmly and rationally describe his family members and the way he killed them proves that he's processing his grief in a healthy, constructive way. You know, he can mourn them and miss them, but his drive for revenge has been satiated and he is ready to move forward. And this is just such a, a contrast for to Octavia, who is sitting there and she can't even answer when he asks her for her sob story. She just chokes on the words and explodes in a fit of rage. Like she's not processing Lincoln's death at all. Yeah, I mean, Octavia is at the end of her rope here. She has nowhere to go. She has nowhere to put her pain. And she can't even pretend to be numb anymore. Like, she's lost that control. And as Ilian says, the escape that she used to feel when she killed is no longer there. So she's not left with any outlet for her grief except to actually grieve. Definitely. Like, it's so important that someone other than Bellamy says this to her. Ilian's ability to size her up and understand her pain and her loss gives him the unique position for her to relate to him. And yet he's not actually connected to any of the events that add to her pain. So he's like neutral territory for her. He's like a clear voice of reason that can penetrate through her grief. Hmm. I guess... So, okay, I've been trying to suss out for this whole season how Octavia really feels about Lincoln's death. And it's been really difficult for me because she wasn't giving me a lot. You know, she's been so set on blaming Bellamy. And I think right after Lincoln died, there was a part of her that truly felt that. 
But more so than that, from the moment of Lincoln's death, it's clear from this episode that she's really been blaming herself. Like, she was there with Lincoln right before he died, and she wasn't able to stop him from sacrificing himself. And she has done everything she could to keep that truth from herself by turning that self-hatred outward. But I think in hearing from someone else who also, in a way, was responsible for the murder of the people that he loved, I think seeing how he was processing it finally broke something in her. And now she's not able to hide the fact that she blames herself from herself. I totally agree 100%. Uh, So with this, Octavia actually realizes that she does have one more way to escape her pain, and she decides to take that out and sacrifice herself to the Black Rain. And Ilian refuses to let her go, however, and he fights with her until she breaks down into sobs and then kisses him. And at first he backs away, kind of like unsure what's happening, but she begs him to make her feel something else, and they start kissing again. Yeah, okay, so before we get into this, like, let's just say at the top that while this was an incredibly sexy scene, um, it was not supposed to be sexy to either of them, and that was clearly intentional from the writers on both counts. I agreed. I mean, the way it was shot with them both in their underclothes and the fire kind of roaring in the background, it was supposed to give this moment an incredibly vulnerable, beautiful feel, even in the midst of their despair. Yeah, and it's a callback to the first time that Octavia and Lincoln had sex, too. Like, Mm -hmm. it's supposed to feel, like, emotionally significant. Um, And the writers have been building up their relationship this whole season. They've been giving them so much sexual tension and all of the previous episodes. We we knew the sex scene was inevitable. Mm -hmm. But I really appreciated that their sex was not about either of them realizing, like, their desire for each other, but really came about organically as just another emotional escape for both of them to keep from dwelling on their pain. And I've talked a lot about how this show uses sex to signify different things to different characters. And this is another really great example. Making this sexual encounter about their mutual grief and as a means of accessing emotions that were intentionally dampened really proves that this show is not interested in just giving Octavia another sexy love interest. Like there is so much more going on here and to pretend otherwise is a disservice to the Yeah, I mean, I hear a lot of talk online about how horrible Octavia's character is and how she always destroys the men in her life. And I just, it frustrates me so much. Me too. I I want to say here that she is not supposed to be right in all the things that she does. Right. And the the show... It doesn't portray her as right, as I think you were going to say. Exactly. The show is not interested in making everything she says or does, like, right. She's, like, supposed to be a person in intense pain. And she uses that pain and she takes it and makes bad decisions that hurt other people, Bellamy most of all, Mm -hmm. uh, because she has no other way to deal with that pain. Like, we've talked about it before, but the girl grew up under a freaking floor. She was trapped in one room for 15 years and she has no idea how to process things in a healthy manner. And I, I just love... I like this new relationship with Ilian, and I'm hoping that he can help her learn to be more constructive um, in terms of grieving and processing her emotions and moving on with her life. You know, I think it's very clear, and the show makes it very clear, that Octavia is still in the middle of her series arc. Like, she has a long way to go, but this is a step in the positive direction. I think one of the first steps in a positive direction that we've seen from her in quite a long time. Oh, I totally agree. I completely agree with all of that. And so I just always feel like I have to defend Octavia, even though I don't think she's right. The show doesn't think she's right. But the the, the way that they're writing her character is true to who she would be as a person if this were the real world. Absolutely. She has no ability to process anything, like you said. And I don't think it would be realistic to give her 
um, the mental capabilities to handle everything that she's encountered since she was released from her prison. Right. Like the, the whole point of storytelling is not to create these like perfect archetypes who go around behaving perfectly all the time. Right. And like misfortune comes upon them, but they deal with it in like hero- heroic manners and like, and, you know, they're still good. I think characters are inherently supposed to be problematic because people are problematic. Right. The show is doing a good job when they're when their characters are flawed, when they're human, when they make bad choices, as long as those choices are consistent to their character and to the arc that they're trying to tell. And that's one thing the show does like amazingly. They're exceptional at it. They're 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 exceptional at writing horrible people. And they're exceptional at writing people who want to be good but still have to make bad choices. And they're exceptional at writing people who don't feel the need to be good at all and just want to survive. Like they're exceptional at writing people. Yeah. And and like in so many different ways and in different interactions. And it's, it's great. And I, I know we go on and on about this, but I think it's really important with Octavia because I see a lot of flack that she gets online and I just, it makes me mad. Yeah. (laughs) So rant over. Yeah. (laughs) So moving on. (laughs) Sorry. Um, so we see the morning after and Octavia is laying and staring at her knives as Ilian comes back into the cave, kind of after checking out the end of the storm and they look at each other really awkwardly and it's kind of a cute, but also uncomfortable moment. Yeah. Uh, and Ilian says that he's going home and he gives her directions to find it just in case she wants to. And as he leaves, she looks at her knives and in that moment she makes a decision to throw her knives in the pool of water and head out after Ilian. So in the setup for the scene, I knew she was going to make a choice here, and I was desperately hoping that she would choose to move forward, but I wasn't sure. So I was like kind of holding my breath until the moment when she finally threw her knives out, and it honestly was one of the most rewarding scenes this entire season for me. Me too. I cannot emphatically stress that enough. Um, And again, like the symbolism is not lost on anyone. It isn't supposed to be subtle. Octavia's knives have been such a huge visual representation of her current mental state, not only as an assassin, but as someone who can't see past their own violence and is razor sharp to everyone around them. Like throwing away her knives shows that she's ready to put this part of her life behind her and that she's ready to move forward and start over. And I love the way this this show uses iconography. And even though it's really dramatic, it's really effective. Mm hmm. We see Octavia later riding up on her horse and she tells Ilian to get on. She'll take him home and she pulls him up on her horse and they ride away. Uh, I just I want to know here that the show, it's not suddenly saying that these two are in love with each other or even that they want to be with each other. I think this is very much a natural progression of their relationship right now. You know, Ilian is the one person who Octavia feels understands her pain and being with someone who gets that eases her own pain in some small way like I don't even know if their relationship will progress past this point at least not right now I don't think either of them are ready for that you mean romantically romantically yeah okay um but I think there's something to be said that Ilian's able to break through to Octavia when no one else can and I think we see at the end that he's the first person that she genuinely wants to be around in a long time and I'm happy that she's found that even if it's only temporary I mean no matter what happens I'm grateful that he made her realize that that she wanted to start moving forward. And definitely, I agree. Um, I also just wanted to like nerd out again. Sorry, guys, I'm an English <laughs> like nut. But I, I love when stories have symmetry. Um, and this final scene between Ilya and Octavia was such a perfect inverse of the first scene when um, he's ch- chasing after her in the woods. And it just really rounded out this whole mini arc and again shows that these writers are masters. 
they are masters. And I have to admit, I know that I gushed a lot about Nyla and Octavia, and I still think they could be great together someday, but I'm really enjoying Alien and Octavia's plotline, and I, guys, I ship it. I do. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that, because I've been holding it in this whole time that I ship them so hard. I mean, it's not hard for me to ship something. Like, Octavia really has chemistry with everybody, so... She's, like, the be- most beautiful human on Earth. But... I mean, like, that's the wonderful thing about the show being on the CW, is, like, all of these characters and the most beautiful people on Earth. <laughs> Covered in dirt and mud and blood. <sighs> anyway, I ship them really hard. <laughs> so, so, with that, um, do you want to move forward and talk about our favorite scenes and our favorite lines I would love to do that what was your favorite scene uh my favorite scene I think was the one between Amori and Clark in the bedroom because I just loved seeing Amori play Clark like a fiddle like it was really satisfying to me yeah no I, I think that would just like perfectly sums up like everything that was good and cool about Amori and it was, <laughs> it was awesome um my favorite scene was the one where Octavia throws her knives away and heads out after Ilian like seeing her make that choice for herself was so satisfying and we have been waiting for this all season and I just loved it yeah I have to say that really was my favorite scene but you took it so this is my second favorite scene but I also just this it was such a momentous momentous moment <laughs> yeah sometimes <laughs> there are no words <laughs> But like, you know, what a, what a nice transition because my favorite line was somewhat related to that. And it was the line that both Bellamy and Kane said that you can't save someone who won't save themselves. Um, and I just, I like the different intonations here. I like that it was really, I mean, not really, it was actually about Octavia and how that informed on that final choice that she made later on and gave it just that much more resonance. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I completely agree. And my favorite line is something totally different from all of that it is when uh murphy tells amori now that's a survivor's move because as i said the couple they're they're wonderful (laughs) the couple that slays the couple that slays together stays together and i truly believe that i do too (laughs) i love it uh okay so next episode's preview the title is god complex and i i'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say this one's gonna be all about jaha my fave and i'm super super stoked about it well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's going to be about my fave, Bill Cadigan, and I'm super, super for real stoked about it. <laughs> yes, sarcasm left aside. <laughs> <laughs> but really, though, I'm really excited for this episode. I loved seeing Jaha from the preview in his, like, cult cloak. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, like, the second I saw that, I was like, oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> uh, so so uh, stay tuned yeah. for next week. Yeah, that's our episode. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast and find us on Tumblr at skycast.tumblr.com. You can also tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I'm at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. Thanks for joining us on Skycast, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.